Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. So this isn't the sermon today, but I, I've uh, pondered uh, Hebrews 13 a lot this week, and that opening line of don't fail in giving hospitality to strangers because you may entertain an angel unaware. We don't talk about angels a whole lot. That could be another uh, series, perhaps. But um, that word stranger is foreigner. It's one who is from, not from your country. And I imagine, perhaps, how, what it might mean to encounter an angel in some of the migrant fields. Or perhaps there's an angel in some of the attainment centers at the border. And there's a word that we should be very careful about withholding hospitality. Uh, you know, uh, sometimes the realities in our world and the political complexities are very uh, hard to maneuver. And also there's some sometimes where it's very simple and it's Whatever else we might should or should not do, we should always treat people as if they might be an angel of God. Because even if they're not an angel of God, they do carry within them the presence of God. That's not even the sermon, but... <laughs> Jeremiah is the sermon. And in Jeremiah, we hear a stinging, heartbroken word from the prophet. Jeremiah is one of Israel's two giant prophets, Jeremiah and Isaiah. We know Jeremiah as the weeping prophet. We know this from some different places, but Jeremiah chapter 9 is perhaps one of the most potent when Jeremiah says, Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. All throughout the book of Jeremiah, there is a weeping prophet. His heart is broken because of the sorrows that his words bring. His wrenching grief over the wreckage that engulfed him and his people and his neighbors. He was having to speak a dire word to Israel because they had abandoned God and ruined was the only result. It's a heavy thing to see the truth of things, to see the disintegration around you, to have to face the ways that we're destroying one another. I have a couple friends who we share a text chain and it's sort of just an ongoing conversation. It goes back years and years. <laughs> I hope no one else ever sees that text chain. Um, Last week, last week, uh, one of the guys just said, I just feel such sadness. And it kind of just went around, and everybody, that's kind of all you could say is, I just, I just feel so sad. You know, I don't trust a prophet with no tears. I don't trust a prophet who calls themselves a prophet but gets juice from pronouncing judgment. 
I don't think that's a true prophet. I think that that is an enraged person who's not yet been undone and remade by the mercy of God. I think that might be a person who's not yet dealt with our own fear or shame or thirst for vengeance. And Jeremiah's tears flowed from the fact that he was in every way with the people. He didn't pronounce a judgment that he excluded himself from. He pronounced a judgment that was coming and said, I'm, I'm it too. It's kind of like when a London paper asks for a number of uh, English intellectuals to answer the question, what's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton, you probably heard this story, sent back basically like a letter this long. It says, dear sirs, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. Toward the end of the book, Jeremiah weeps over how his warnings came true. The Babylonian Empire conquered Jerusalem, and as the rubble burned, the soldiers marched the people out of the city, leaving behind only a, a beleaguered group of Hebrews who the empire didn't even think was worth taking. They get a few miles outside of the city, and the king, Nebuchadnezzar, had sent word and told them to stop their march home and to go and get the prophet Jeremiah and take off his chains and give him an offer. And the offer was, you can come to Babylon, but not as a prisoner. You can come as a guest, and we will protect you. Because what had happened in the book of Jeremiah is a lot of people who were his own country persons, his own countrymen, they, they, they wondered whether or not he was a prophet or he had abandoned his patriotism because he kept pronouncing judgment. And so the king says, you can come back with me or you can actually go back to uh, Jerusalem, whichever you want to do. There was nothing in Jerusalem. <laughs> it was burning. And he decided to go back to be with those who were left behind and try to rebuild the city. That's Jeremiah. That's the praying, weeping prophet. And through this weeping prophet, God asks a question to the people. What wrong did you find in me that you went far from me and went after worthless idols and became worthless themselves? Isn't that actually quite a tender question for God to ask? What, what fault did you find in me? What wrong have I done to you? And maybe there are some of us here today that would say, well, I can answer that question. <laughs> I have some wrongs, God. I have some faults. I think the invitation of Jeremiah, the invitation of God, certainly the invitation of the Psalms is if you have those faults to God, then you speak them. And you speak them to God. God is big enough to handle it. And if we're honest and if we speak the terrors of our heart to God, I think that perhaps we might encounter a love and a presence that actually transforms the story that we've been telling ourselves. Well, God reviewed the long story with his people, the wide sweep of his faithfulness, how he carried them out of Egypt, how he was watching over them 
But God, of course, hadn't met all their expectations. God hadn't ultimately kept them from the disaster of their own decisions. But God was up to a much larger story than they could envision. But God's love and God's care and God's presence never wavered. Not for a moment. Just like at the cross, God did not abandon us to our suffering, but God actually joined us in our suffering. Whenever we get the question, and it's, it's one of the most vexing, and it's one that I probably hear the most often, is how can there be a good God and how can there be so much evil and suffering? And you know, there really is no good answer to that question because an answer is logic. God doesn't give us an answer. God gives us himself and says, I will be with you in the very middle of the terror. And you actually do not suffer alone. God's own self suffers. Julian of Norwich says, and I saw quite certainly, and I saw quite certainly in this and in everything that God loved us before he made us. And his love has never diminished and never shall. And all of his works were done in this love. And in this love, he has made everything for our profit. And in this love, our life is everlasting. And in this love, our life is everlasting. And it's this God speaking through this weeping prophet And you have to hear the words of God as the one who loved us before we were born. And you have to hear Jeremiah in the words of a weeping prophet when he says, the people went after worthless idols and became worthless themselves. You see, the problem with us may be that we misunderstand what idols are. Idols aren't just figures carved in stone or wood that we bow before. Idols are a physical representation of the way we think the world works. In biblical times, idols weren't merely religious artifacts that they stuck in their home somewhere that were part of their religious life and that was separated from their real life, their farms, their crops, their political realities, the health of their families. Idols represented the forces that needed to be appeased for their life to be safe, for their family to be prosperous, for their children to not die, for the plague to not wipe them out, for the lightning to not destroy the village. In our modern world, we've evolved so that we're not so foolish to believe that a golden calf can bring us rain or secure our harvest so our family won't starve but we've only concocted more sophisticated idols. The economy has to be appeased for us to be okay. So locate our idols. I tried to think this week about how, what are the questions we can ask ourselves to try to get at, how do I think the world works? What are the things that I think I have to have in order for my life to be okay? What do I bow my life to? I don't know if these questions will be helpful, but if they are, what do you most dread? 
What do you fear will destroy you? And if what comes to mind is God, then you have an idolatrous view of God. What do you most dread or feel will destroy you? What do you feel you must secure for your life to be safe or meaningful? What place in your heart are you unwilling, unwilling to yield to God? What is it that captures your imagination or your hope? Richard Rohr says, whatever you trust to validate and secure you, secure you is your God. And the gospel is saying, will the real God please stand up? So I've thought some of this week about what my idols are. I'm not going to share a lot of them. <laughs> but I thought of two. One idol, when I am operating out of my false self and not centered in the love of God, is the idol to have the right answer. I, I uh, partly because of my personality, my Enneagram number, and uh, the, way I, the way I grew up, I feel very unsafe if I can't nail down the right answer. I also, and this is really wired into my story, I think, I, I have an idol of, and this, I've thought about how to, how to even explain this. It might sound completely ridiculous, but um, it's an idol of not hurting anyone. So um, in my life, I've experienced a lot of people who've been hurt and hurt by well-meaning people, hurt by Christians, hurt by pastors, hurt by leaders. And I think at some point I, I felt that hurt myself and I determined I was not ever gonna hurt anyone. Which is, a, you know, I guess a noble sounding thing until it gets really self-absorbed. And particularly when you put together needing to have the right answers and not hurting anyone, that can be a difficult place to live in when answers often are really difficult to come by and there's a myriad of ways of hurting someone and when a lot of times what you're encountering is if you don't have the right answer, you're going to hurt someone. <laughs> And whenever I am operating out of things that are lies and not true and not centered on God, those things can become obsessions. We have idols of the economy, idols of relationships. We can make an idol out of our health, our family, our vision of the family, our politics. The crazy thing is in almost every idol, it's almost always a really good thing that gets twisted. It's good to want to have the right answers. I mean, there's no nobility in the wrong answers. It's good not to hurt people, but you can't always control who's hurt and who's not. And they went after these worthless idols. They worshiped these worthless idols. 
And the difficulty here is what Jeremiah says. It says, and they became worthless themselves. So here's the real tragedy of all of this. Whatever we go after, whatever we worship, that's what we become. It's not that God was saying, you're worthless. He's saying, whenever we give our heart away to things that are lies and meaningless and true, and they're just vapors, we are transformed into that very thing that we are worshiping. And that's a tragic place to be in. And then he closes with this powerful image. Be appalled, O heavens. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, says the Lord. Another translation puts it this way. Be horrified, O heavens, at this. Let your hair bristle. Be absolutely amazed. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug out cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that can hold no water. And this image is one that every person in Israel would have understood because they had to dig out wells and cisterns to hold water, and they had to line the porous limestone cisterns with plaster so that the water wouldn't soak away. What Jeremiah is telling us is that God is the deep fountain. The love of God is the deep fountain. It's the fountain that never runs dry. It is what thirsts the deep hungering of our soul. The thing that that we most need to live is God. And we we abandoned that God. And we go and we take our little pickaxe and we start digging another cistern. And we dig and we dig and we work and we work and we fight so hard. And then we get really angry when the cistern is not working properly. And we dig harder and we get angrier and we begin to form our entire life around digging this freaking cistern. And we dig the cistern and we dig and we dig. And finally, a little bit of water starts to come up. We start to, oh, this is actually gonna work out. This is gonna happen. And all of a sudden we look back again and it's gone. And so we can return to the deep well where God is. Or we can grab the pickaxe again and we just start going at it again. But what God tells us is is that this cistern is cracked. It's broken. It will never hold water. And this cistern is all the idols of our life all the ways that we think we must make our life work. And the prophet is weeping. And the prophet is crying out. It's, it's, he said, what are you thinking? Who, who does this? This is insanity. And all of us hear this image and we say, that is insanity. And every one of us live insanity. We dig those cisterns 
we try to find the way that we can make our life meaningful and safe and abundant and good. And God says, I am the deep fountain and I will never run dry. And your cisterns will always break. Always. Will you pray with me? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.